Thank you, Ashley. Good morning, church family. It is such a blessing uh, to be here with you guys this morning. No, no greater task do I ever undertake than to open the Word of God before the people of God to the end that we would be mutually edified and God's name would be magnified. It is deeply, deeply satisfying to me. And I pray that you uh, grow and are challenged and are strengthened in your walk this morning and as you leave this place. And to that end, go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 8. And we are going to look at verses 31 through 47. Uh, keeping with where Pastor Jeff left off last week, we'll look at this. And would you follow along with me as I read our passage this morning? Beginning in verse 31, this is what the Apostle John records for us. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if, Abraham, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Now, as we consider this this morning, and, and obviously, and I hope this microphone does not hiss and pop too much. I want to break it. I'd be in trouble. It's obvious from the title of the sermon this morning that we're looking for something, aren't we? And that we're going to find that something when we examine that which does not lie about us, the heart. So I want to pray that we're focused, that we consider what the task is today and take it seriously and leave here a changed people. So would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we ask in this moment, we give you thanks for it, first of all. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come together as your people with the great expectation that you will speak to us, that you will reveal your glory to us 
through your holy word. Father, I confess that in and of myself, not not only am I not fit to preach, but I'm not qualified to preach. Our only hope in this moment is that by your spirit, you would condescend among us, drive your word deep into our hearts and our minds, and that it would bear fruit in us as we leave this place and engage in our culture wherever we find ourselves. So, Father, set aside the things that would distract us in this moment. Give us ears to hear and hands and feet to respond accordingly. And Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Brother Jeff has been very, and I love this, he's been very clear over the past several weeks about what the goal is that we're seeking as we come to this moment in the service. And it's simply this, and he said it several times, that it is that we persevere in the faith. The perseverance in the faith is that thing we find in Scripture that is both a promise and a proof. It's a two-sided coin. We're promised that we will persevere in the faith. He who has began a good work in us will bring it to completion. But we're also told, as we see in our passage today, that perseverance in the faith is a proof that the confession of faith we hold to is indeed genuine. And we need both sides of that coin. So this is what we're looking for today as we come to this passage. So we want to persevere by beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And part of that call to persevere is is examining ourselves. is taking time to take stock of where we are in our walk of faith. And this interaction that Jesus has with these new believers and the hostile, unbelieving Jews that are listening to him gives us great instruction on this issue. Now remember, the context of this passage is Jesus is still at the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's still speaking to a crowd that consists of, and this is very important as we'll see in a moment, consists of Pharisees, Jews who are hostile to him and want to kill him, and those who are genuinely there to hear his instruction, to hear his teaching. And that brings us to our initial consideration this morning. Exactly who is Jesus speaking to in this passage? So when you look in verse 31, you say, well, isn't it pretty obvious? It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. But the reason I ask you that question is because when you get down to verse 33, who is the they that all of a sudden this conversation becomes very confrontational? What's happening here? So if, because if you study this passage, you will be hard-pressed to find any commentator... I'm talking guys that I love, D.A. Carson, guy, I mean, guys that I, I love. You'll be hard-pressed to find any commentator who believes that the they believed of verse 31 are genuine believers. Now, honestly, we know from John's writing and in his gospel, he does contrast belief unto salvation and superficial belief. But, but something else is taking place here. And I'm going to tell you why I hold to that, because I, I completely disagree with the assessment that those who are said to have believed in him that we find in verse 30 and 31 are not genuine believers. That something else is taking place here. And the reason people hold to that is is because of the ensuing conversation. The reason they would say, well, these aren't true believers because look at that ensuing conversation that takes place when he mentions slavery and freedom. So... I disagree with that assessment. I say these are true believers, so what is taking place here? 
But the reason I disagree, there are several reasons actually. Number one, I'd say this, because he's, remember, he's speaking to a mixed crowd. There are more people there than just those who believed in him, but there's also those who are hostile to him, and the Pharisees who cannot stand him, they're hostile as well. And in verse 31, here's another reason. Jesus gives a genuine and crucial discipleship directive to these people, which is, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Why? Because he wants them to have assurance. He wants them to experience that proof. And we know from other passages in, Jesus, in John's gospel that Jesus knows who believes in him, and he knows who's those who, who don't believe in him. But he's giving these people a genuine discipleship directive that we need to take seriously and really think about as we walk the walk of faith. And third, I would say this. Is it not a radical breakneck shift to go from the category of those who believed? Now think about this. If you stop there and say, well, what is it they believed in? Well, back up into the rest of of the passage, chapter 7 and 8. Think about the Feast of Tabernacles. What has Jesus been teaching these people? What is it they believe in? He said, first of all, if you come to me, you'll never thirst. And he says, I am the light of the world. He who comes to me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And he goes on to say, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Then he says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, when I'm lifted up, you'll understand, you'll see that I am He. He who, the one God has sent for the redemption of His people. And it is based on those things we read in verse 30, many believed in Him. I mean, to take the other view is like saying, you know, this guy's great. I believe what he's saying. I believe he says who he says he is. I've never heard anyone teach like this before. Yeah, he's got to go. That doesn't make any sense. So I believe that there's a shift that takes place here in the conversation. So all this being said, what we witness here is Jesus speaking to those who have genuinely believed in him. And when the Pharisees and the hostile Jews hear him talk about freedom and slavery, they immediately take issue with him and they chime in. And that's when the hostility starts. So I think that, that, that lays a clear context for this passage for us. Though, again, you'll be hard-pressed to find people in the academic sector of things that hold to that. But I can't, I can't for the life of me understand that. To me, it's simple conversation. This takes place in our own lives at times. Someone overhears it and goes, oh yeah? I disagree with that. So I think that's important that we remember that. This is a genuine discipleship directive being given and then those people chime in who have a problem with what Jesus is saying. But it, it's that problem, it's that challenge that they give to him and that they can't understand that gives Jesus the opportunity to teach about this crucial truth, but what it means to follow him and to believe in him unto salvation. So here's our, here's our ladder, or, or lattice, I'll say, that we're going to pin things on this morning. It, in three sections, it always seems to be three sections, but here they are. In verses 31 through 36, Jesus gives that essential directive that is so crucial and yet so easily misunderstood, and we'll talk about that, and it allows him to warn against the danger of misplaced assurance in the Christian life. 
misplaced assurance. And we, we can fall into that. And then secondly, verses 37 through the first half of verse 41, he warns the Jews who have taken issue with what he has just said that their confidence in belonging to God based on their ancestry is not only misguided, but it's telling as to who they really are. And then in verse, the second half of verse 41, down into verse 47, he gets to the root of the issue by pointing them to, now this is important, and I'm gonna, when we get to it, I'm going to really stress it. But he points them to the law of the affections, which tells us how we're supposed to abide and obey. I mean, that's, that's the call here. The directive at the beginning is to abide in his word, which implies obedience. It implies a lot of things, but at least that. And did you catch, I don't know if you, you noticed here, that the strong contrast Jesus speaks of here when he talks about the, the truth and freedom pairing and then the lie and slavery pairing of things. These are the two issues. And we'll see that those two issues tie directly to the truth of God as father or the devil as father. So first thing here, verses 31 through 36, the danger of misplaced assurance. And what's it? The, the overarching issue here is concerning truth. So again, it's important to remember who Jesus is speaking to in this moment and who chimes in when they hear what he says. Verse 31, the direct audience, which is laid out for us here, is those who, the Jews who had believed in him. A genuine directive, crucial for us to understand. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is teaching these new believers what real assurance is grounded in. What is assurance? It's just being sure of something, right? I know that I know that I know. And it's that knowledge that brings me peace. So he's teaching them what that sort of peace, what that sort of assurance is grounded in. It is grounded in the reality, the principle of abiding in his word, which, as we will soon see, is evidence of a deeper, a greater reality, which is really where we're driving, or where Jesus is driving. So understand, this is important. The only thing the Bible ever tells us that grounds our assurance of salvation, that the only thing the Bible ever directs us to ground our assurance in is not a past confession of faith or baptism or even a perceived call of ministry, but in abiding obedience to Jesus. This continued belief that is evidenced by this continued abiding. This is why Paul in Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who are literally believing. There's a continuation of that state of trusting Christ and abiding in him. That's what our assurance is grounded in. That's why he tells them, if you abide in my word, implying abiding in him, you prove yourselves to be truly my disciples. So what's he implying there? I mean, it's, it is by this principle alone that he says we will demonstrate that we are truly his disciples. And no doubt somebody say, well, what about John 13? They will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Absolutely, but that comes from this. This is ground zero. You can't love one another without loving Jesus. Oh, my goodness. 
What does that say about how we treat each other in church sometimes? What is the cause of fighting and quarreling and bickering and accusation among us? I say it's very clear. It's an issue of how deeply and how doggedly we are pursuing love of Jesus. See, the, the quarreling is just a symptom. It's not the problem. So, the thing is, this, here's how we misunderstand this. This is not a new law that Jesus is giving us. You prove yourselves to be my disciples by keeping on, keeping on, and developing a solid, healthy Bible reading plan. That's not what he's doing. What he's saying here is this is the reality that will naturally happen to you. If you are truly my disciples, here's what your life looks like. You abide in my word. You abide in me. This is what disciples naturally do. Because they've been radically changed. And their heart drives in to who Jesus is. They can't get enough. So... He's graciously telling us what what we should naturally be doing. And the reality of that doing is astounding. You caught it there in verses 32 through 33. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, his statement here is implying some very important things about ourselves. Number one, that we need to be set free. That's, That's what the hostile Jews take issue with. Because that... What does that imply? We're, in, we're enslaved to something. And then it implies something about truth and falsehood, which is the, the correction to this slavery. I mean, tr- you think about truth. Truth is a hot-button issue today, is it not? I mean, we could say that truth has always been debated because lies have been around since the fall. So there's always this trying to discern what's true and what's not. But this issue of truth... Its tentacles in, the, in recent years have stretched so far into so many things that we, but beforehand we would have said, well, of course that's true. Of course this is a, real, a reality. And now we're debating it? Where did that come from? Uh, phrases such as, this, I've always been dumbfounded when I hear this stuff. Phrases such as your truth and my truth. Even if those truths are opposed to one another, are both true. I mean... Absolute truth isn't even held on most college campuses anymore. This, this notion that there is something that is absolutely, independently, objectively true that drives reality. I read an article a couple of weeks ago. I didn't read it. I read the title, and I thought, well, I'm not going there. But that scientists are actually starting to question, get this, the laws of thermodynamics. Have we gone that far? Apparently. So, but, but get this, but here, when Jesus speaks about truth here, he is not pointing us to a set of facts that when clearly understood will help us live a better life or live in reference to a moral way of living. And we'll find out shortly that truth is not primarily a set of facts, but a person. And any set of facts that falls into the category of truth must stand under, under the dominion, the lordship, the sovereignty of this person, Jesus himself. 
And he makes this very clear that this is what he's talking about. It's not a set of facts to follow. I mean, that's going to be tied into that, but that's not where it starts. When Jesus confronts the unbelieving Jews about knowing truth that they might experience freedom, when he says, you know the truth and the truth will set you free, actually, he's saying that to these believers, but they hear it. But they don't ask him what truth is. Even Pilate asked Jesus what is truth. They don't ask what truth is, but they get hung up on the fact that they're not slaves and the fantasy that they've never been enslaved. Think about that for a second. You remember Egypt? You remember Babylon? You remember Assyria? That's just to name a few. They're saying, we've never been enslaved to anyone. What do you mean, you will be free? So they, they take issue with him. And Jesus is graciously pulling them towards himself, and they are clinging to Abraham. Jesus is speaking in terms of faith and trust, and they are living according to the flesh. Misplaced assurance. And it's so easy to do. I do it. I start to measure my life and faith based on what I'm involved in. And it doesn't always measure out the way I would want it to. Look at verses 34 through 36. Since they say, you know, how, what do you mean you'll become free? He makes it very clear. If there's any doubt in their minds about what Jesus was implying by saying, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free, this settles it and makes it clear. Jesus makes clear to them that the true nature of their current slavery is slavery to sin, which even they would clearly understand, if true, would bar them from God. And that's why they hate it. He says, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You can imagine their eyes widening at that point. But in verses 35 and 36, he uses an analogy to help them understand the remedy for this problem. Whether or not they're willing to grasp it at this point. He uses the analogy of the slave and the son. And this gets into the issue of why I said Jesus is talking about a person, not a set of facts. He talks about the slave and the son. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. He doesn't have that right. But the son remains forever. So only the son has the inherent abiding right to remain as a part of the household. But... Because of that right, the son has authority to set the slave free. And if he does, he is free indeed. So, based on what Jesus has just said, that knowing the truth will set you free, verse 32, and the son has the authority to set you free indeed, verse 36, then the truth that sets you free is the son himself. This is what they don't get. This is what they can't see. When we talk about truth, remember, you are coming from the foundation of talking about everything that falls under the dominion, the lordship, the power of Christ himself. If something is true, it's true because he deems it so. And Jesus never shies away from this about himself, does he? John 14, 6, well, we're not there yet. Brother Jeff might get us there in 2026. But he says this, 
Philip says, look, where are you going? Show us the way. I don't, I don't understand. And, and he says to him, I am the way and what? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the pathway to get there, Philip. I am the truth that sets you free. And I give you life. So now Jesus moves from this issue of misplaced assurance. And that's, that, you know, he's giving that directive for them to have assurance. And those who don't believe him immediately take issue with it. But it instructs us, doesn't it? So he moves from that to addressing directly their misguided confidence in their ancestry. So look at verses 37 through the first part of verse 40, 41. The evidence of misguided confidence. And the issue here is concerning fatherhood. This issue comes up. You know, Jesus has talked about his father a lot, and, and the issue of paternity to be, becomes central in the minds of these Jews now. But note how Jesus affirms that they are Abraham's offspring in verse 37 when he says there, and you can catch his frustration with that, I know you're a offspring of Abraham. And then he implies that they are not in verse 39. Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. So in one breath he says, I know that you belong to Abraham. And the next breath he says, no, you don't. What is happening? What is he saying in that moment? This is where we see very clearly that the reality of who we are is seen in what we do. But that's the surface because it's greater than that. It's not just seen in the measurable physical activities that we engage in, but what's behind them. The reality of who we are is seen in what we do because it reveals our pursuits and our passions and our focus. This is what he's getting at with them. So this is the framework of this section. Verse 37 speak to the reality of the physical descent of the Jews from Abraham. And you can hear Jesus' frustration and their confidence. I know. And Jesus said, could have said, I'm a descendant of Abraham's, Abraham as well. And then verse 39 speaks of the lack of evidence that they possess. Get it? The justifying faith of Abraham. There's the difference. You're physically descended from him, but you don't possess the faith that he had. He said, I know you are. This reminds me of one of those, when I was a kid, I used to watch this show called The Electric Company. And they had this little skit to teach children, you know, when things don't match or don't go together. And they say, one of the, they had this little song, one of these things is not like the other. That's what this is. I know you're Abraham's children, yet you're trying to kill me. How does that match up? But he gives the reason, doesn't he? And you think about what he said in verse 31, the directive he gave the disciples, that you abide in my word, you show that you belong to me. And here he says to these people, and this is why I think this is further evidence that Jesus is talking to a different group of people. Here he says, my word finds no place in you. I don't think he would waste his breath telling them to abide in his word if he knew from the beginning, my word finds no place in you. These are hostile Jews who by his own statement want to kill him. Doesn't sound like those who believed in him. So, there it is. Look at verse 38. My word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard 
from your father. So here's, so what he's saying here, here's the deeper reality. This is what's explaining why my word has no place in you. And he speaks of his father again and uncovers a devastating tr- truth about their own paternity, which is what he's getting at. So Jesus is revealing something from his father, and they are doing things they have seen from their father. Jesus, has, Jesus hasn't dropped that bomb yet. It's coming about who their father is and all their insistence that it's Abraham. So in verse 39, again, they insist, Abraham is our father. This is their confidence before God. that they are, Their understanding of what it means to be included in the covenant belonging to God is that they are merely descended from Abraham. Watch this. Here's that deeper reality denial that Jesus gives them in verse 39. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. So in other words, yes, verse 37, you were Abraham's children physically. Yet, verse 39, you do not, do not Do not do the things that are in keeping with the faith of Abraham. Don't tell me that you belong to him if you don't look like him. What you say about yourself does not line up with what I see you doing and what I know you want to do, which is kill me. And and even even as harsh as this is getting, this rub, Jesus is being so gracious to these people. And telling them the reality of who they are. So if he says, you would be doing the works of Abraham, well, what is that? You're not, you don't live in keeping with the faith of Abraham. What is that? They would have understood. Genesis 15, 6, that great passage where we find the first indication of what it means and what it looks like to be justified by faith. When Abraham has just gotten out of a war with kings. I'm twisting this mat back here. You guys can't see it, but I'm getting too excited. So he's in this, this war with kings and saves his nephew Lot in Genesis 15. And after that, I mean, we, you meet Melchizedek in that, and it's incredible. But after that, Abraham is discour- Abram at that point is discouraged, and God says, Do not be afraid. I am your shield, your protection, and your very great reward. Come outside and let me show you something. Look up to the stars of the heavens. Your descendants shall be as numerous as the stars. I know you don't have a son yet. I know Sariah is barren. But your descendants from your own body will be as numerous as the stars. And get this, I will give you a great name. And also, those descendants will be strangers and servants in a land not their own for 400 years, but I will bring them back. And then we come to this verse. Right before God is going to cut a covenant with Abram, it says this, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Not self-righteousness, but a righteousness not his own. The same righteousness that is required of you and I if we would stand before God and be forgiven and counted as perfect. This is why Paul says in Galatians 3, 7, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. What? 
So this whole idea of physical descendancy is not what ultimately counts in being a son or daughter of Abraham. In other words, if you had the faith of Abraham, you would be doing the works of Abraham. And James picks up on this, doesn't he? Faith shows itself by works. Faith working through love is all that matters, is what Paul argues in Galatians. But here's the work they're doing in verse 40. And Jesus keeps bringing this up. Why does he keep bringing it up? They've not brought it up, but he knows it to be true. Because he wants them to see it and see that dichotomy about who they claim to be and what they're doing. He says, you seek to kill me. And here's why it's horrible. He says, a man who has told you the truth I heard from God. That's not a work of faith. A work of faith, according to what we see in Genesis 15 with Abraham, is to believe God when he speaks. To trust him, no matter how radically ridiculous it sounds to our human ears. I mean, I've never been in a point where God has, has told me to do something that looked like what was going on with Abram. You'll have multitudes of descendants. Your wife can't have children. You don't even have a son, but I'm going to take care of all of it. All those impossible barriers laying there. But Abram believed him. But what they're doing, seeking to kill Jesus, is not a work of faith. And Jesus makes that very clear. He says, this is not what Abraham did. I mean, he's just making the point. This is not how he acted. But this is what you're doing. You tell me you're okay. You don't want to hear what I have to say about the truth and being set free. You keep clinging to Abraham, but why don't you look like him? Why don't you trust God when he speaks to you? And that's the issue. And by the way, how does God speak to us today? Well, according to Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, by his son. It's in Jesus. And this is what Jesus is arguing. And how does that happen now? The same way it did when the readers of, of the book of Hebrews would have read it. In his word. This is why Jesus is saying, abide in my word. When you abide in my word, you are pursuing me. Which we'll see is, is very important. Look at the first half of verse 41. You see why their confidence is so misplaced and misguided here. He says, you're doing the works your father did. So Jesus at this point is simply dialing in the sights for the bomb he is about to drop. What's he saying? Somebody else is your father. You insist that it's Abraham. But it's somebody else. Now, this next point that we're moving into, you cannot miss this. Because everything that Jesus has said up to this point is powerful, but it should make us uneasy. Because how, how is it that I abide in Jesus' word. Pastor Eric, you said that this is what disciples naturally do. But then why is it so hard at times? How do I keep it from feeling like a new law or something I check off to make sure I'm a disciple? How do I keep assurance from being an issue that is on me? So all this that Jesus is saying about... this, When Jeff told me... I mean, I had a passage that I was hoping he would 
land on where I would, because I knew I was going to preach, and we were staying in the Gospel of John, and I was like rooting for him to stop at a certain point so I could handle like the, the light of the world passage, that kind of stuff. But he landed here. And so as I started reading through it, it was crushing me. I'm telling you guys, I, I, felt, I started examining myself and going, why don't I look like Abraham? Why does my life not necessarily seem to clearly indicate that I belong to Jesus? It's, it's convicting. So you start to say, well, how is it that I, that I abide and it not feel like it's all on me? Because that's how we can misunderstand Jesus saying, you'll prove that you're my disciples if you abide, you know, this hard way. And I'm not saying you don't work. It's grace-fueled effort. But how does this transaction take place? What, what's really happening here? And that's where we get to verses, the second half of verse 41 into verse through verse 47. And it's the verdict of the affections. And the issue here is concerning love. So Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter here and uncovers why it is that they are slaves to sin. And that his word has no place in them. And, and that they're seeking to kill him. And, and the reason is, is, is simpler than we might think. What's, what's what happens in just that first half of the second half of verse 41? This is, these Jews take a shot at Jesus. I'm sure you caught it. They say, we're not illegitimate. So since the issue has become paternity, who his father is and who their father is, that's what they keep harping on in their minds, they seem to insinuate that Jesus was born as a result of Joseph and Mary experiencing physical intimacy before they were married. That's the shot they're taking at him. And they drill down. After they say that, after they insult him, I mean, the gloves are off at this point, right? They just thrown him off, and now they want to go after who he is, his family. They're just rabid at this point. And they say, we have one father. So now they, they ratchet it up and say, even God. We are descendants of Abraham, sons of Abraham. God is our father. And that opens the door for Jesus to settle it for all of us in a simple phrase in verse 42. If God were your father, so think about this for a second. If God were your father, if you knew him, if you claim that you have the faith of Abraham, if your life showed that you are not cut from the cloth of this culture, if you loved others for their own sake and gave of yourself willingly and sacrificially for them, if my word found a place in you and you sought to abide in it, the undeniable proof and explanation would be this. Are you ready? Here it is. You would love me. You would love me. See, it's this. When that question comes, how do I abide? How do I keep from feeling like it's all on me? Beloved, if you want to know the fuel for abiding in Jesus and abiding in his word, it's that. It's loving him. This is why I said earlier, this is not a new law. This is not Jesus telling you to do things. This is not Jesus telling you to, to, to try harder. This is Jesus saying, 
love me. This is what I call, here it is, the irrefutable law of the affections. This is the reality that Jesus is driving us to in this interaction. Here it is. What is the law of the affections? We serve what we love. We will lay down our lives for what we love. You cannot escape that truth. And the greater the love, the greater the willingness to sacrifice for it. And so Jesus isn't saying, look, do X, Y, Z and prove to yourself and everybody else that you belong to me. He's saying, love me. Cultivate deep, abiding love in me. And this is so important. This issue of loving Jesus and loving others and that being the fruit of the Christian life is so important that Augustine argued that it, it, that action of love, that, and it's not just an emotion, it is, it is a, a force that, that drives what you do, that it is so important that it should be a safeguard to every action we undertake to do and defines whether or not that action is okay to, to be involved in. Listen to what he said. Augustine preached a sermon on 1 John chapter 4 concerning this love. And it's at the end of this quote that I want you to, to really perk up and hang on to it. But this is what he says. He says, A father spanks a boy while a kidnapper caresses him. Offered a choice between blows and caresses, who would not choose the caresses to avoid the blows? But when you consider the people who give them, you realize that it is love that spanks, wickedness that caresses. This is what I insist upon. Human actions can only be understood by their root in love. All kinds of actions might appear good without proceeding from the root of love. Remember, thorns also have flowers. Some actions seem truly savage, but are done for the sake of discipline motivated by love. Here it is. Once and for all, I give you this one short command. Love God and do what you will. I have a tendency to make things very complicated in my own life. And that simplifies things quite a bit. Love Jesus. You want to safeguard your life, safeguard the decisions you have to make. Push into who Jesus is. Love him. And do what you will. The rest of verse 42, he says, you would love me because the one you claim is your father, he sent me to you for your benefit. I didn't come of my own accord. God sent me to you. Verse 43, I, I love it when the humanity of Jesus leaps out. His frustration when he says, why do you not understand what I say? And he answers the question for them, doesn't he? And again, this is that great contrast. He says, you cannot bear to hear my word. Not only does it find no place in you and you can't abide in it, you can't even bear to hear me speak. 
you don't like what I'm saying to you. And that reminds us that a love for Jesus will show itself in a hunger for his word. And I'll be the first to admit that oftentimes, when I, when I was pastoring full-time, it was easy. But now things are very different in my life with work. And a hunger for the word of God, I have to chase it. Sometimes I'm just, I feel like I'm too busy. And that's okay. It's okay to experience that. It's not okay to stay there. But a love for Jesus will show itself. So, so it's not a hunger for the word as an end in and of itself. He's being so gracious to them. But here, here he drops the bomb on them. Um, verse 44. And, you know, to be a, a fly on the camel's back at this little exchange... He says, you are of your father, the devil. And you can imagine the widening of their eyes and the dropping of their jaws at that point. Um, and I think it, there in verse 40, 44 when he says, "Look," he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I think he's taking them on a very concise trip through Genesis 3, and they're acting just like him. He says, you know who I'm talking about, and that's who is driving your life. Verse 45 says, because I tell you the truth and you do not believe me. So what does this imply? If he's saying the devil is your father, I'm speaking the truth to you. And he's going to prove that in just a moment. He says, you don't believe me. What does this imply? They, they want the lie and not the truth. Because the truth condemns them where they stand and demands everything. And here's our tendency. We look at this and go... Look at these people. Jesus is standing right in front of them, and they want the lie, not the truth. But folks, this is us. Apart from grace, this is us. There's no hope for us to be any different than these he's having his conversation with, if not for the interposition of divine grace on our behalf. Just wouldn't happen. Because that's naturally who we are. We want the lie and not the truth. We exchange the lie or we exchange the truth in order to get the lie. Sounds like Romans 1, doesn't it? So verse 46, here's, here's the surgical strike of logic about everything that's been going on here. Verse 46, <laughs> he's appealing to the law at this point, though he doesn't say it overtly. He says, which one of you convicts me of sin? So, if you want to kill me, show me how I have broken the law and sinned so grievously that I deserve such swift judgment, that I deserve to be stoned. Since you can't, and the Father's testimony, my own testimony, and the testimony of my works say that I am telling the truth, you're left with the question. Why do you not believe me? 
mean, he's already talked about these three witnesses, hasn't he? And he brings it up in saying, if I've sinned, point it out to me. But he knows they can't. He knows these witnesses testify to the fact that he is telling the truth. And the question remains, why do you not believe in me? And, and verse 47 is the hard truth that's it, rooted in love. And, and when we read this verse, remember that hear, to hear in this verse implies believing and abiding. He says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear is that you are not of God. So Jesus is implying that he's speaking the very words of God, which they can't hear because they don't belong to him. What's the evidence that would be there if they did belong to him? They would obey him. How would they consistently abide and obey him? They would love him. So the question comes to us. How we abide in Jesus' word and so prove to be his disciples. And again, and I keep hammering this, but it's important. Jesus is not calling us to pursue the task of Bible reading as some sort of membership card that proves our allegiance. No, remember, it's about loving him. He is calling us to pursue fellowship with him. That's what he wants. He doesn't want your activity. Now, activity may come, but only to the end that you know him at a deeper level, that you love him more. How do we abide in Jesus and his word? By loving him. How do we love him? By abiding in his word. You say, well, that sounds circular. No, it's cyclical. Here's the difference. In a cycle, one results in and cultivates the other. And that's what this is. Abiding in Jesus' word results in and cultivates a deep love for him. A deep love for him results in and cultivates a desire to abide in his word. Jump in the cycle. If you want to, as you should, abide in Jesus' word, you have to cultivate that love for him. And if you want to love him, you have to abide in his word. When the child of God opens up the word of God, rehearsing and feeding on the glory of God in, the, in Christ, in the gospel, it fans the flame of a deep and abiding love for Jesus, which pushes us into his word and creates a desire to abide in him. I mean, it's on and on it goes. But what happens, and I thought about this, what happens, how do we get out of this cycle? If you're in a cycle, you know, how do you get out of it? I mean, we, we lose focus and let the concerns of the world pull us out of it. At least that's what I do. I let things pull me out of and get my mind off of what I need to be doing and I'm out worrying about other things which pulls me into other cycles that cultivate other things. And that's the danger. So what's the fuel for abiding in obedience? Love. How does love for Jesus grow? Abiding in obedience. And here's what I leave you with this morning. Beware of misplaced assurance. Your assurance, and, and John is all about this assurance, isn't he? John chapter 20, I wrote these things that you may know. We're not supposed to float through the Christian life wondering whether or not we truly belong to Jesus and if we're okay. No, that's, that's terrifying. That's crushing. We need to be assured and rest in that peace that we belong to Jesus. 
So beware of misplaced assurance. The assurance we should have should be from a continual abiding in him. The continual believing and trusting in Jesus. You want to examine yourself, you ask yourself that question. Am I trusting in Christ alone? Or am I doing things to prove to myself that I belong to him? There's a difference. Beware of misguided confidence. Remember, faith shows itself by working. Faith working through love is what matters, which ties us into the very last thing, doesn't it? Examine your affections. You will serve what you love. You'll be willing to lay down your life for what you love. So examine these things. You know, this, this interaction that Jesus has, it's, it's hard to preach a, a happy, funny sermon when Jesus is just scouring these people graciously <laughs> because they're so lost. But when he does that, for those of us who, who have trusted Jesus unto salvation, is there something for us to learn in that interaction? Absolutely. Because left to ourselves, we're the same way. So do these things. Beware of assurance that is, is not grounded in what it should be. And confidence that is laid in something else and other than the way your life is working itself out. And demonstrating the reality of your faith. And remember to pursue with everything you have. By grace-fueled effort. A deepening love for Jesus. Everything else can burn up and fall away. Every person you know can betray you and leave you alone. But this one, who is truth, will never do that. And all human relationships that involve cultivating love involve great risk. Why? Because we're sinners and selfish. Even the relationship I have with my lovely wife and her relationship with me involves risks because we can hurt one another. This pursuit of love is without risk. He loves perfectly. He loves sufficiently. He loves eternally. And it is that love which fuels everything else in our life. So remember the irrefutable law of the affections and ask yourself those tough questions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, if I have said anything that is not in keeping with the truth, that has been confusing or misleading, I pray that it would be easily and swiftly forgotten. And to the degree that I have spoken and kept in keeping with the truth of your word, I pray that you would drive it into our hearts and minds. May we find our assurance in a loving obedience and abiding in your beloved Son. May our confidence be in that we can examine our own lives and see our faith working itself out 
by loving others and serving them. And may we remember that which irrefutably shows who we are is where our affections are anchored. And Father, we've seen very clearly this week that some people's affections can be anchored in some very demonic things. But Father, may our affections be always anchored in Jesus. Help us to pursue a great and deep love for him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.